join our studies as we come back to our regularly scheduled programming already in progress. We are picking up in Luke chapter 20. And you may recall uh, that in God's providence, we uh, were together on Palm Sunday and we were looking at uh, the rest of the triumphal entry, the end of chapter 19, where Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and then enters into the city and cleanses the temple. And we ended on a note in chapter 19, verse 47, that Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. Well, for the next two chapters, as we look through Luke's gospel, we'll see exactly that. Jesus, day in, day out, teaching in the temple. And we'll see his, uh, him confronted by some of the leaders and the teachers who were there. We'll see him also giving an extended teaching about the last days and what to expect and what signs will be uh, before his coming. And so we'll see Jesus teaching us more and more over the next several chapters, and Lord willing, over the next several weeks. Today we're looking at chapter 20, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 18, where Jesus has uh, a confrontation with the leaders and then in response tells them a parable to reveal their hearts and exactly what's happening uh, in their confrontation of him. So we're reading today Luke chapter 20, verse 1 through 18. You can find that, if you've not already, in most ESVs on page 879. Let's read God's word together, and then once we've read, we'll go to him in prayer and seek his blessing on our study. Let's read. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is who gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. For they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered and said that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Please join me in a word of prayer as we seek God's blessing on our study together. 
Oh, gracious Father, as we come to your word, we pray that by your spirit you would give us grace to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, that we would see Jesus Christ and by believing in his name might have life. Help us, O oh Lord, to trust in the Savior that is revealed through these words. Help us to believe in him and to find life in him, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In the uh, 10 years, roughly, since I became a father, I've noticed a few things. I've noticed uh, that parenting often is a game of repeating yourself. And it's a game of repeating yourself, hopefully, I trust someday, until what you're repeating doesn't need to be repeated anymore. And so you say things over and over again, things like, don't touch that, eat your dinner, put your socks in the hamper. And in our home, one of my repetitions is that if you have to hide what you're doing, that's a good sign that you shouldn't be doing it. Now, that doesn't apply only to my children, actually. <laughs> it could just as easily describe their father, uh, who tells them that, no, actually, you can't have a snack right now. And then there I am, five minutes later, hiding out in the hallway, uh, hoping that nobody notices that I'm eating a piece of their Easter candy. And uh, we all know how it works. The whole reason that we hide what we're doing is the impulse that we get that we're probably up to no good and we shouldn't like anybody else to see us doing what we're doing. It could be moral no good. It could be dietary no good. It could just be, gee, I'd be embarrassed if anybody saw this no good. But it's why children learn to whisper. It is why limousines come with dark windows. It is why internet browsers allow you to clear the history. It's because most of us imagine that our secrets are much better hidden than they actually are. We're coming now into a section of Luke's gospel where the opponents of Jesus, the opponents of the gospel, are imagining that they can hide the evil that they're plotting and somehow get away with it. Notice the previous chapter ended by telling us uh, that the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy Jesus. Of course, they can't come right out and do it in the open. They have to be sneaky. They have to hide their intentions, their schemes against Jesus. And in this case, in this situation, they hide it underneath a debate about who should be in charge in the temple. So we read in chapter 20, verse 2, now that this same group, roughly, the priests and the scribes and the elders this time, they come up to Jesus and they said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. It was a rejection coming in the form of a question. That's our first point today, a rejection in the form of a question. Well, we should begin by noting that, that their objection to Jesus, their question of him, actually came with just enough pretense to make it look genuine. These three groups of men, the elders and the scribes and the chief priests, it was from these three groups uh, that, uh, that the Jews gathered their ruling council, the council that we know as the Sanhedrin, the ruling council that was in charge in those days of maintaining order and orthodoxy among the people and especially of maintaining order in the temple. It was their job, it was the Sanhedrin's job to see that the word of God was taught, 
that worship of God was maintained. It was their job to make sure that every Jew could approach God in prayer and sacrifice. But here now comes this popular hero, this prophet who's been all throughout the land of Judea and Galilee and gathered a following for himself, and now he seems to be taking over the space that they controlled. It was bad enough when he came in and he cleaned the place out like he owned it, and, and now, even worse, he's set up like a college professor in a lecture hall, and every day he's, he's teaching his own take on their old-timey religion. And people keep coming to him, and they're not going to them, and they keep flocking to Jesus, and he's stepping on the toes of all the most important people in Israel. And so they have to do something. They had to do something public, really. Because if they let Jesus continue, it would have amounted to a silent approval of his ministry, a kind of silent surrender of the authority that they had over the people. And so they questioned Jesus specifically on the issue of his authority. Who sent you? Where do you get off doing these things? Where do you get the power uh, to presume to take place reserved for the leaders of the people? It wasn't a genuine question. That's another parenting tactic. There are some questions that you ask for information. There are other questions you ask for emphasis. Does this room look clean to you? You're not asking for information, and neither were the Pharisees. I'm sorry, not the Pharisees. They're gone. Uh, the Pharisees are done in chapter 19. Neither were the leaders in the temple there. They weren't asking for information. They were simply rejecting Jesus, and it came in the form of a question. They were already convinced that he was a false prophet already convinced that he was disrupting the peace. And so they questioned him in the hopes of exposing that he was a fraud. They were hoping, perhaps, that Jesus would answer by saying that he was sent by God. Because if he did, then they would probably begin uh, mounting charges for the council on the charge of blasphemy. Better yet, maybe they were hoping that Jesus would say, I was sent by no one, I sent myself in which case they could simply convince the people to ignore him. To steal a line from C.S. Lewis, perhaps they were hoping that he would give them enough evidence that they could prove that he was either a liar or perhaps a lunatic. It was a trap. It masqueraded as a legitimate concern. It was a rejection in the form of a question. And so in response, Jesus lays his own trap. Verses 3 and 4, he answered them, I also will ask you a question, now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? This was a masterful stroke. Now, they put out a jab and left themselves open, and he countered with a right hook. Uh, it was exactly what they needed. This question that Jesus asks puts them between the horns of a dilemma. They are forced to do uh, essentially one of two things by answering this question in either direction. Either they will reveal their incompetence as leaders of Israel, or they will have to accept their unpopularity with the people. And they didn't want to do either of those things. These men, of course, were those who were the leaders, the shepherds of Israel. These were the men who should have made a pronouncement on whether a prophet in Israel was true or false. So here comes John and the first people to announce to everyone else whether you should follow this man or not follow this man. Well, it should have been these leaders the chief priests and the scribes, the elders of the people. And if they agreed now that John's baptism was from heaven, they would be admitting that back then when John was doing his ministry that they had been blind to God's movement. 
that they rejected God's word through his sanctioned prophet. Even worse, if they agreed that John was a prophet sent by God, they would be admitting that they were not looking for the Savior John said was going to come after him. The Savior who stood right in front of them. But then again, if they said that John's baptism was from man, well, they knew the people wouldn't stand for it. If they simply announced, well, well no, he was a fraud too. He was, he was an upstart sent by himself, sent by no one, and, and out in the wilderness spouting ridiculous theories. If they said that, they knew the people would, would lynch them. And you can read the book of Acts to find that their fears were not unfounded. It only took a few unpopular comments, and some of the Jews could turn the temple into a bloodbath in minutes. And so they couldn't say that John was from God, and they wouldn't say that John was from man, so in the end, the best they can do is to feign ignorance. We don't know, they said. It was a punt. Their primary responsibility to shepherd the people of Israel, and they refused to say whether John was a fraud or a prophet. And actually, their refusal revealed, revealed that they weren't really as concerned with the truth as they were with how they looked. You notice that when they debate among themselves, they don't say, well, what do we really think? <laughs> they had an idea, of course, an idea that they, that they didn't want to tell Jesus in front of all these people, but they didn't debate whether it was true, whether he was or not. They simply debated the consequence of their answer. If we say this, what will people think? How will we weasel our way out of this one? What should we say to maintain our position and our place before everybody who's watching? That's what they were concerned with. Well, they were concerned with maintaining their own authority. You see, they asked their question of Jesus, not in order to hear Jesus, but to silence him. They were looking for an excuse to reject him, to reject everything that he was teaching, the gospel that he proclaimed as he stood in the temple. Actually, that's the way that many people deal with Jesus today. Here comes Jesus, proclaiming his gospel, making demands of men and women. Here comes Jesus, calling men and women everywhere to repent of their sins, to surrender to his lordship. He calls people to be disciples to be disciples with their time and their schedules and their money and their desires and their work and their sex and their language and their love and every aspect of their humanity. He calls people to be disciples and he leaves no area of their life untouched by the gospel call. Many people want nothing to do with Jesus and his call, nothing to do with Jesus and his authority. So some people simply ignore it. They hope that Jesus and his demands will go away. If they cover their ears long enough, maybe they will pull away the cover and, and find that nobody's speaking to them anymore. Others go in the other direction and they rebel outrightly. They thumb their nose knowingly to the God of creation. They, they flirt with outright blasphemy or jump headlong into it, perhaps. They say, I don't need, I don't want any of this that, that is being pressed upon me. Others excuse themselves by raising objections to Jesus and his authority. Sometimes it comes as a, as a cultural objection. You know, Jesus was a teacher for another age. 
he taught morality in this bubble that we have long since burst. We're, we're enlightened now. We're advanced now. We've got new structures, new societies, new relationships, new ways of doing things. We've got a new morality, and we no longer need his authority on those matters. Other people raise scientific objections. <laughs> Jesus believed in Noah. He believed in Jonah and the whale. He went around preaching the hope of the resurrection of the dead. But science has released us from the yoke of believing these things, and so we don't have to pay attention to anything that Jesus says anymore. Other people make intellectual arguments to make fine, uh, high-sounding, convoluted theological arguments. You can multiply the way that people do it. It's one variation after another, but, but Phil Riken says it all amounts to the same question. What gives him the right? What gives him the right to tell me what to do with my money, or to demand my worship, or to tell me he's the only way to eternal life? Tell us, Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? And that's what Jesus faced in the temple. It was a rejection. It came in the form of a question. So Jesus gave his opponents an answer in the form of a parable. Second point, an answer in the form of a parable. Now, as you look at this parable, one of the things you need to know is that it's different from many of the parables that we know and we, we see from Jesus. Actually, this one has more to do with, with something like Pilgrim's Progress than it does with those enigmatic sayings about the kingdom. This parable reads more like an allegory than it does like a mystery. And the imagery in uh, this parable and this story that Jesus tells was carefully chosen to connect uh, the, the drama that he's unveiling here in these verses with the people of God as a nation. He, he depicts them as a vineyard. And that was the way you spoke to Israel, to let them know you were speaking to them as Israel. It would be like telling Americans a parable about a bald eagle, or Canadians a parable about a maple tree, or pick your people group and the symbol that, that identifies them. Whatever it is, for Israel, it is the vineyard. It is the grapevine. So those of you who are with us for Sunday school this morning know that Hosea 10 calls Israel a luxuriant vine. Ezekiel 19 says that Israel was a vine in a vineyard planted by water. Isaiah sings his love song. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, then he cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines. All of this background in, in the cultural understanding of the people, the religious understanding of the people as a nation, it was this image of a grapevine. And even where Jesus was teaching the people, they could probably all look in the direction of the entrance to the temple because around the doors, 70 cubits high, was this carved vine, uh, carved grapevine. It was covered in gold. It was encrusted in jewels. It was this magnificent, resplendent picture of exactly the way that Isaiah closes out his love song. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And so when Jesus begins his parable that a man planted a vineyard and went away and, and put it into the possession of other men, they know exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about Israel and their God. Because the master of the vineyard, of course, is God himself. 
and the servants that he sends to collect uh, upon the fruit of the land, those are the servants, his prophets. The leaders, the, the, the tenants in the story represent the leaders of God's people. The priests, the scribes, the elders, those men whose sole job it was, their responsibility to cultivate the people to make the land of Israel, the nation of Israel, fruitful and and abundant. And now God sends his servants, the prophets, to gather a harvest of righteousness. And they already knew the story that he was telling. That over and over again, God sent his servants, and over and over again, they were rejected. They were cast out. They were sent away empty. They were persecuted. They were rejected. They were killed. They were martyred. By the time of Jeremiah, the call to be a prophet was synonymous with suffering. Because God's prophets were subject to beating and imprisonment. They were subject to death at the hands of violent men. And often it was the kings, it was the priests, the leaders of the people who perpetrated the worst crimes against God's servants, the prophets. In our English translation of the Old Testament, it ends with Malachi chapter 3. But if you were to open a Hebrew version of what we call the Old Testament, it would end with the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 36, to be exact, the last chapter in the last book of the Bible for them. And here's how the last chapter, 2 Chronicles 36, beginning in verse 14, here's how the last chapter of the last book in the Hebrew Bible summarizes the era of the prophets. All the officers of the priests and of the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and upon his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. It could be a line straight from Jesus' parable here, couldn't it? God sent his servants and And one they beat, and another they shamed, another they wounded and sent away empty. And it's a story of growing animosity between the leaders of God's people and between them and the servants that he was sending. It was a pattern of increasing, repeated violence against the prophets. But the climax of the story wouldn't come. The rebellion wouldn't be fulfilled until God's own son was executed. So in the parable, Jesus has the owner of the vineyard engaging in an an internal dialogue that we get to to peek into. We get to see the heart of, of this master of the vineyard. He says, what shall I do? As though he's trying to find the right approach for these rebels who simply will not bend the knee. Here's an area where we need to make sure we don't get carried away by the allegory because, of course, in reality, God is not perplexed by human sinfulness. He's he's not sitting in heaven ever wringing his hands, trying to find a plan B, trying to figure out how do I deal with these rebels? What do I do? How can I draw them to myself? God is not surprised by the violence of his people against his prophets. So this, this detail here is not to tell us that God is caught off guard, but it is to show us his Wonderful, long-suffering patience with sinners. Think about it. How many prophets would you have sent? How many times would you send messengers with the same message, calling for faith and obedience and faith 
in obedience all over again, watching them be harmed and rejected, watching the word be rejected that you're sending out. How many times would you send? Martin Luther wrote that if I had been God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would have kicked the wretched thing to pieces. And maybe you would have as well, but not our God. What shall I do, he says? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. Again, of course, God knows that they won't. Everybody who's listening to the story as Jesus is telling it, they all know how it's going to end before he ever gets to the final chapter. But the Lord still sends his beloved son into the world. He sends the word made flesh. He sends the creator through whom all men and women have the breath of life in their nostrils. He sends the only begotten Son who is face to face with the Father from all eternity. He sends His Son into the world, and the leaders of His chosen nation not only refuse to listen to Him, but they go a step farther and they, they plot to put Him to death. They execute Him. They execute Him in the hope that they can turn it somehow for their own personal gain. Look again at verse 14. They knew what they were doing in the parable. When the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. He's telling this, of course, within earshot of those who are challenging him. And in the next chapter, verse, or I'm sorry, in the next section, verse 19, the scribes and chief priests sought to lay hands on him this very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. They're right, actually. And so on the lips of these tenants in the parable, this is the heir. They recognize him. They don't have to wonder where his authority comes from. This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. Now, it's true, actually, if you go through the uh, teachings of Israel, through the, through the prophets, through the, the obscure laws of the Talmud, we can find some laws that deal with absentee landlords. We could maybe find some some footnotes and some disclaimers about what to do about a parcel of land that hasn't been claimed, and, and if you were a tenant, could you take that land over? But, but the point of this parable is not driving at any sort of legal technicality. It's not trying to show us a way that these tenants have found the right way to get a hold of what they want. It's showing us that their plan is pure wickedness. It was insanity to imagine that the master would hold them guiltless for the death of his son. Far less to, to think that they could somehow gain for themselves the authority that belonged to him. The point of the parable is that this was the worst plan in the history of plans. It was the most outrageously sinful, debauched grasp for power that has ever been proposed. And Jesus is telling the people this parable so that they would know that this most terrible of plans is being played out right in front of them. The authorities are already plotting against him, against the Son of God. Why? Because they didn't want him interrupting the good thing they had going for themselves. That's what we learn about their motivation for putting the Son of God to death. Uh, John chapter 11, verse 47. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. 
That's what motivated the death of the Son of God. It was pure and simple self-preservation. The leaders of Israel saw Jesus not as a savior, but as a threat to their power, to their sovereignty. Jesus offered peace, and he offered reconciliation with God, but it would cost them to obtain it, wouldn't it? It would mean giving up their authority in order to to bow the knee to a master other than themselves. Becoming Jesus' people would cost them their power. It would cost them their pride in the eyes of the people. It would cost them their right of personal choice. It would cost them their individual situational morality. But ah, if they could only silence him. If they could only put him to death, if they could strip him of his rightful place, they could go on with the delusion that his authority might become theirs. It seems ridiculous on the face of it. But that's what lies behind every rejection of Christ the world over. It's why sin is such a big deal in the scripture. Because all sin, even small ones, inconsequential ones, it's really a a mutiny against God. It is a spiritual power grab. Every time someone asks that confrontational question, Jesus, what gives you the right? Every time we choose to ignore Christ's ability to tell us how to live and how to love and what to believe, we are attempting to take his authority for ourselves. And refusing to bow the knee to Christ is claiming that we know what we need better than he does. And it's pretending that we can get what we need better than we can receive it from him. This is how sin works. Many people reject Christ's message, and they do it by denying his authority. Because once they've denied his authority, they imagine that they can take it for themselves. But it is always a pursuit that ends in destruction. We've seen already a rejection in the form of a question. We've seen an answer in the form of a parable, and Jesus closes out this section by giving them a judgment in the form of a proverb. A judgment in the form of a proverb. Verse 15. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. Now, when you hear that objection of the crowd, because Jesus is speaking to the crowd here, that's the they, they said, surely not. When you hear that objection of the crowd, it's hard to understand what exactly they're objecting to. Was it just that last line at the end, that distasteful notion that the kingdom of Israel, God's luxuriant vineyard, would be given into the hands of others, into the hands of Gentiles? Or did it include everything up to that point? That not only would would the kingdom be given over, but it would be given over because they rejected the servant par excellence, the son, his beloved son that he sent into the world. Were they objecting just to the judgment or to the rejection that led to it as well? When you notice Jesus' response in verses 17 and 18, he seems to deal with both of those. The rejection and the judgment. He seems to answer the whole question, not just one tiny slice of it. And actually, in the mind of the crowds, it was all unthinkable. Unthinkable that God would send his son 
and the leaders of his people, his chosen nation, would cast him out like refuse in the streets. Now they knew, of course, the history of God's people with his prophets. They knew the way that God's messengers, his prophets, had been silenced and they had been murdered and they had been sent away into exile. They knew that their very forefathers were guilty of the blood of God's servants. But the situation that Jesus was describing was so completely unfathomable that they believed that they were incapable of such wickedness. It is the nature of of our hindsight and of our spiritual pride that we tend to see other people's sins more clearly than we see our own. And so it's fashionable now to imagine that if, if we were the ones, if we were those people who were alive in Nazi Germany, we would have been the ones standing up for those being led off to the slaughter. It's fashionable to imagine that if we were the Southerners who were alive in 1845, we would have been the ones on the forefront of the abolition movement. And you can pick your time period, you can pick your missed opportunity. We almost always imagine that whatever situation we're in, we would be part of the good guys. Remember Peter's words to Jesus after he's told him that they would all fall away, that they would all deny him. Peter says, though they all fall away because of you, yet I will not. We always imagine that we are the ones who will not fail, even when we know the history. And so when Jesus prophesies that the Son of Man is going to die by the hands of Israel's leaders, the people are scandalized, filled with disbelief. That could never happen here. That's exactly how it did happen. That's exactly how it was happening already. The wheels are already in motion before their very eyes. The opposition has begun. It's already heading. The leaders are plotting against Jesus already. And so Jesus quotes to the crowd a line that, that perhaps his disciples had sung of Jesus just the day before. As Jesus was coming into the city of Jerusalem, his disciples were gathering around him and they were singing Psalm 118. Specifically, they sang verse 26, Blessed is he, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus now quotes Psalm 118 verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It was a prophecy of triumph. The Son of Man would be made the cornerstone of God's building project, a temple made of, of living stones, the New Testament tells us, built one upon the other with the apostles as the foundation and Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone, the very foundation stone that, that is set first of all to set the entire course of the rest of the building square and true and right. He'll become the cornerstone. Christ, the Son of God, will be exalted as he should be. But it's not going to happen without rejection. It is the way of the Lord to bring the cross before the crown. And Jesus looked them in the eye, it says. He spoke directly to them and told them that he is going to fulfill God's plan to the very end, rejection and death included. And then he goes on to say that those who had a hand in the rejection are not going to escape unscathed. Verse 18, Jesus says, everyone who falls on that stone, the cornerstone, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, 
and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, the rabbis had a proverb of their own. It said, if a clay pot falls upon a stone, woe to the pot. And if a stone falls upon a pot, woe to the pot. In either way, woe to the pot. And that's the idea here. It's the way of sin to reject God's authority. It's the way of sin to reject God's authority in order to try and take it and claim it for ourselves. But when God brings judgment on those who rejected his son, it's going to be a matter of clay versus rock. On the day of his judgment, all hidden rebellions will be revealed. All secret plots to claim his lordship for ourselves will be uncovered. God will reject everyone who denies the authority of the Son. And it is one more call to us not to stiffen our necks to the gospel call of God. Christ came to bear the rejection that we deserve in order to lead us to the Father through his suffering. He came to bear our sin on his body on the tree. He came to be raised again to give us hope of forgiveness by faith. And it's one more exhortation for us all, as long as it's called today, not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's one more call to build our lives upon the rock of Christ Jesus, or else to be crushed by it. And God will reject everyone who denies the authority of the Son. That's the point of this passage. That's what Jesus is teaching us, but he's also calling us not to be crushed, not to be broken, but rather to be built up by the Spirit into that living temple, that temple of living stones to have our lives built upon the foundation of Christ. Not a foundation we lay by our own works, but one that's laid by the death and the resurrection of our Savior. It's a warning and it's a call that we should be found in him. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for a Savior who warns us of the dangers of rejecting his authority. Use this, oh, Lord, even for those who already know him and already trust in his lordship. Use this as part of your sanctifying grace in our lives. Use us to to call us away from sin and closer to Christ, to cling to him, to turn from the ways that we would try to usurp his authority. Oh Lord, make us more and more your people. Conform us more and more to his image. Build us upon the foundation of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.